0: Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to October's version of Payroll Question Time. And I'm going to introduce what today's discussion topics are, which are indeed the end of furlough. Hurrah, I hear you all say. Planning for jobs, the latest schemes, health and social care, national minimum wage, the latest news, gender pay gap reporting, pensions and tax relief pre-budget speculation. We're going to have a couple of polls around there as well. And the new means of working travel and office. But let's begin with the end of furlough. I'm sure if I could go into all of your rooms right now, you'd hear lots of cheers here. We've got to the end. See your dress on the 30th of September. And this is all all about what we need to do next. So let's uh, kick off by coming to yourself, Simon. End of furlough. What next? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, so uh, furlough ended on the 30th of September. The final claims had to be in by the 14th of October and of course some of you may be receiving letters or have noticed there's been a few mistakes or you may have even missed someone. So uh, not all is finished down. You actually have until, and it, but it's not very long, the 28th of October to finalise all of your corrections and claims. Uh, but just a reminder, you do need to keep records for six years. We often see in the social media lots of talks, questions, etc., that uh, a number of us on the panel review. And it's increasingly clear to me at times that I'm not sure that all employers have actually got any furlough agreement in place, although they may have placed people on furlough because the individuals don't seem to be aware of an agreement or are challenging why they haven't received holiday, et cetera. So just be aware you do need to keep those records in place of all your agreements and what you've done. Um, HMRC have a number of years to come along and inspect those records. So uh, and if you have been overpaid grants, you have an obligation to repay them by various deadlines. So the 28th of October is an important date. That's where I'll start at this point. Uh, If you want others to join in, we can cover some of the other aspects because I think there's the end of SAIS, there's the end of the SSP, uh, etc. Come back to me if we need to, Nick.
1: Perfect. Let's move it then from left to right. Luke, can you give us uh, any additional information you'd like to add, particularly in relation to perhaps the SSP rebate scheme ending or the self-employment income support scheme?
3: I think... I would just like to reiterate to everybody, just follow up on what Simon says. It's about looking back at your records and to be able to justify the claims that you've made and that you have the backup and that you have all the important information that the government has provided at nine o'clock at night or at seven o'clock in the morning, saved down so that whenever you look back at your what you've applied for, that you're able to justify that. And I, I know I've said that every single month, but it is key because when HMRC come and reach out to you to back up the, the application that you've made you have to be sure of your of your facts of the information around your employees and at the law at that point in time and I think that's so important to remember.
1: Absolutely. So I come over to yourself Karen Armstrong Watson you're obviously working with lots of different clients what if I'm someone watching this webinar now and I'm worried that my clients missed the deadline to claim?
0: It's funny you say that actually. We've actually had a few that have said, oh, I forgot to claim in July. They've claimed since or they've claimed before. You can't claim. And if you, you know, at the end of the day, HMRC would have allowed for a reasonable excuse. It isn't there is no such thing as the reasonable excuse if you didn't claim in July. And I think there is also that if you didn't claim in July and you didn't get the money. So I can see why HMLC stance is what it is. But I think coming back to maybe Lou's point on the compliance side. About record keeping. I do think it is really, really important because when HMLC do reach out and they, for whatever reason it might be, are querying a claim, they don't give a huge amount of time to turn that around. Um, So having records that are in a proper order, easily uh, retrievable is crucial. And if you use an agent such as ourselves, EY, SD Walks or others, bearing in mind, as soon as you get that information, if your agent has supported you with any of these claims, uh, they will have sent you the records, but it is important if you need their help that you get in touch with them as soon as possible, because it's something like, it's sometimes only even 14 days, Simon, isn't it really, to turn this information around. Um, so, again, good records. But the other thing I was just going to mention, I, I saw something pop up and on alert this morning. And it's uh, a hotel um, that their cleaners have just won uh, repayment of the furlough pay. Um so for whatever reason, this hotel, which is named, um, decided they, they would claim furlough, but didn't actually pay the furlough. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody listening to this webinar would be in such a position, but it's just if you hear of somebody, you know of somebody, um, they will get caught out. um, And the hotel, quite rightly, has been ordered to pay the monies to the employees. And I suspect there'll be further follow-up from HMRC in that respect as well. So just as a a warning, that case has just been on the news this morning.
2: One of the biggest tips I have on my blog is actually uh, finding out whether your employer's claims furlough uh, I think it's uh, seems to be, you'll know most of my articles are fairly obs- obscure and a bit uh, niche but uh, that one I've had over 15,000 hits on finding out whether you've had a, wow. a furlough claim on you which is unusual for a, such an obscure site i probably say but it's just to remind the other aspect about this that I think HMRC are reminding people is of course any furlough income grants you received as an employer actually uh, has to be recorded on your tax return as income and it is taxable on the business profits so you do need to actually apply on the company tax return CT600 possibly on the partnership return SA800 And uh, if you're self-employed and you had employees, potentially you need to put it on your individual tax return, the SA-103. So it's just a reminder that uh, these grants weren't just a freebie, et cetera. They will actually impact the profitability of your business because they're treated as uh, turnover.
1: And what about then if I'm watching this and you're thinking, OK, I'm worried I might have claimed in error because obviously that has happened. Cam made a great example of a hospitality company that's done that. Or maybe I haven't claimed enough or I've claimed too much. What will be the next, next step? So there's three questions in there, really.
2: Yeah, there's a 90-day turnaround limit. So if you become aware that you've received monies you shouldn't have or you've not used it because the circumstance changes, then officially you have 90 days from receiving the CGRS money you're not entitled to to repay. Or 90 days from the point circumstance changes so that you were no longer entitled to keep the CJRS grant so just be aware of it also the other implication of course there'd be interest charge potentially if you're exceeding some of those limits or even if you're meeting some of those limits there is interest charge to pay on monies that you wouldn't have been entitled to does that help a bit I don't know if others have got some comments on on that sort of thing but if you haven't repaid it, repay it as soon as you can.
1: Well, I've had a, I've had a, a question come in which talks about, we've had a, employees contact me about their right to holiday during and after COVID. Most were completely furloughed. Are they still entitled to accrue holiday as well? As a small business, we won't be able to pay up for these holidays as well as recover from COVID with the loss of sales, et cetera. Any idea where to check out? Check this out would be gratefully received. So
4: for me, and, it's, uh, and we've covered this before about holiday accrual, but, but holiday accrues as a facet of being employed rather than being working. So there isn't any reason why holiday wouldn't accrue. It would be a rather strange position otherwise. Just picking up on, on this slide, on the job uh, support scheme bonus, because um, I know that this is, has been an issue for certain people. Because I, I think it was rolled out, I, I think, in July of 2020. And uh, the intention was, was that if individuals were retained for a sufficient period of time, continuous employed, uh, there would be a bonus of £1,000, I think was the, the, the level. But that dropped away um, in November. Uh, I think it was the fifth Treasury direction. So if anyone's uh, anticipating the job support scheme bonus, I think you'll be waiting a very long time for them.
0: I was going to say, if I can come in as well, Nick, on that, I've been getting a few inquiries from clients um, saying, I knew something, you are right, it was supposed to be, you would record if somebody was over the LEL, if my memory serves me, I remember writing a whole article on it, I think Simon, you did too, on a weekend and then Mm -hmm. the following on the Monday, it was canned. As far as we're concerned, it is into the pastures out of the universe, but it was going to be a £1,000 for November, December, January, as long as you paid them and retained them so they weren't on furlough because flexible furlough was, of course, due to end, and you did that, and then come February, March, you'd have made your declaration and got your money. But no, it is unfortunate, and I, I think it's fair comment from some clients, particularly those small businesses, who actually had, rightly or wrongly, had already planned the spend on that money. So they were going to bring them back. Um, I know of some that have bought you know for example, computer equipment to allow people to work from home or whatever it is, and thought, well, that's okay because that money will pay for that, and of course, that money hasn't arrived, and to my knowledge, will not arrive. Can I just pick up on the SSP rebate as well?
2: Yeah. Yes.
0: You don't mind. It was just we some discussed this before. So obviously the rebate scheme has ended. But and correct me if you know something different, Simon or Lou. The SSP right from day one. So no waiting days. If it is one of the COVID related reasons that you could have used the SSP rebate scheme still applies. Um, So it's still from day one. Only though if it's on that list for COVID reasons. So we yeah. don't know when that will end. But the fact that it's the employers having to pay for it rather than the government, i whether there'll be a hurry to end that, I yeah. don't know. Without blurring the, the, uh, I mean,
1: the expertise on the payroll side, because obviously I'm not a payroll expert like you guys, but I know you mentioned the, the laptop there. And as a business owner, this might be useful for those small business owners. Of course, if they have invested in laptops when they've allocated that money for it, at least this year, there is a new 130% first year caps allowance for qualifying plant and machinery, which is new and you can definitely take advantage right. of that. Uh, It's a 50% first year allowance for qualifying special rate assets. And certainly it's something that a lot of small businesses are utilizing. So hopefully that uh, at least lessens the burden a little bit if you have invested in in tech, at least, with the money you were expecting. Um, Sorry to interrupt on that, please.
2: That's okay. Uh, Going back to your question, though, Nick, did we cover that for you on the holiday? But the answer is yes. Uh, They're entitled to 5.6 weeks annual leave. Holiday is a statutory minimum. Does that continue to build up during periods of furlough? As John's saying, they're still employed. So the answer is yes. Uh, And uh, you could have reclaimed 8% of the holiday, well, to reclaim the furlough amount, but you'd have had to have topped up to 100% of the uh, Working Time Regulations stroke Employment Rights Act amount of 100% of their usual holiday pay entitlements that they would have been. So furlough wouldn't cover the 100% coverage of holiday pay. You'd have had to have covered the difference. There is, of course, this two-year carry forward of holiday entitlement that's allowed, um, so you can uh, potentially allow them to use it future years, whereas normally holiday is on a use it or lose it basis. So um, good luck with it all, but yes, they're entitled to holiday pay. What's was a recent ruling, John, on relation to agency types, I think,
4: uh, on a uh, furlough, uh, which is of interest. Well, it's it's a, a little bit confusing. There are a couple of decisions yes. uh, that are out, uh, at the moment, and they appear to point in different directions. Um, uh, but, but I think you can triangulate it. It, it. In one of them, there was a contract uh, with the agency worker that made it clear that they were only engaged during the period during which they were on assignment. Uh, and so in terms, there was no contract in place between the assignments. Whereas in the other case, it was it was slightly different and they fell into something that was really akin to a typical employment type relationship uh, where they would accrue it all the way through. So there are some distinctions in respect to agency workers, because often the contract will say, you know, whilst you're on assignment, you're engaged by us. But when you're not on assignment, there isn't any contract between us. So there's a slight difference in in approach depending on Quite how the agency relationship is structured.
1: Super. And, yeah. and what we've got you, John, is there anything before we move on to the next subject, which is Plan for Jobs, Later Schemes, anything in relation to redundancies that we need to be aware of as it relates to end of furlough?
4: Well, I suppose just looking at, at the broader context, as I understand it, there was about 800,000 people still on furlough when the scheme came to an end. And what's interesting, just in a more general sense, is to me, there's a slight age element to that. Uh, in the sense that I think 500,000 of those who are on furlough are over the age of 50. And to a certain extent, that that leads into what we're going to talk about, about the plan for jobs and the changes which Rishi Sunak announced, which are a little bit more focused on those. But looking at it in a a broader sense, what I found interesting, uh, perhaps a little bit surprising, was that uh, certainly in in March 2020, the levels were fairly low at about 4 per 1,000 in terms of redundancies. They went up to about sort of nearly 15 per thousand in the September period. But in the last figures that I could see, that they've dropped to really quite low levels. And if you looked at it on a historical basis, um, I haven't seen levels as, as low as that between 28 and 2008, sorry, in 2014. So from my perspective, we're not seeing a huge amount of redundancies, uh, large scale collective ones, coming through our door at the moment. Most of that work has, has been done.
1: Super. So as we finish the end of furlough, any final points, Lou, before we uh, move on to the next part of the, uh, the topic of conversation?
3: Closing, nope. closing note. <laughs> to me, furlough is behind us. Let's look forward and just uh, deal with anything that comes our way. But I think everybody has to be aware of that HMRC might come knocking and just to be prepared and not panic, but just have another review.
1: Fantastic. So if we can move into the next part of our topic of conversation today, which is plan for jobs. There are a number of new schemes. We've got industry placements, kickstart schemes, national career services, sector based work academy programs, traineeships, qualifications for adults and skills boot camps. Who would like to uh, take the floor by kicking off with some of these schemes on our panel? Let me come to yourself, uh, Simon.
2: Well, actually, Nick, do you use kickstart in your business at all?
1: Well, we are investigating Kickstart at the moment. I think it's uh, a very clever scheme. Uh, as a direct employer, we get the opportunity to receive £1,500 to, uh, to help support the learning of anyone we take on. Um, it's open to all employers from all sectors, so the recruitment obviously counts for that as well. And the main purpose of the scheme is to help young, you know, the young individual coming through the scheme to become more employable by the end of their Kickstart job. So the idea is we're going to give them some training, give them all of the things they need, get the, the investment from the government to help with that. And at the end, hopefully, we'll be taking them on as permanent consultants. So it's certainly a scheme we we, we intend to take full advantage of as a recruitment agency. I think it's a very um, clever scheme for helping young people get into work and give them the training they need. So, yeah, we've got some, uh, some experience with it, but we haven't quite engaged with it yet. We we're about to, I would probably say.
2: Yeah, sure. And in the industry, we have the payroll apprenticeship around. There's an element of opportunity to think, how do we get new people on board into our own profession? But with the incentives available, and there are time limits on some of these, but the apprenticeship incentive, I think, expires at the end of January next year 22 but you can get a three thousand pound grant for apprenticeship then it goes on to some of the other activities like industry placements and and t levels Uh, so that's a new two-year qualification for 16 to 19 year olds with a 45-day industry Placement. So there's an element of there's some skilled people out there that potentially are looking for that industry placement. Does that fit your business and how do you want to react to that? Because potentially you get a thousand pounds. I think it is cash boost. For every placement you give uh, so it's just thinking of those the kickstart scheme I think you've just mentioned a little bit about for 16 to 24 year olds with uh, 100% of wages being subsidised up to national minimum wage levels by the government uh, for up to 25 hours if they do more I think you have to pay that yourself uh, the government will actually pay the employers national insurance liabilities and the pensions auto enrolment employer contributions uh, plus there is a £1500 funding level so there's another of there. National Career Service, uh, some will know that um, on some presentations I'm education, 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 and I won't claim it or- originates with me because it doesn't, but, uh, but there's an element of uh, I studied the diploma, I studied the master's, this past year de- during lockdown become an AML qualified manager, uh, I've done an employment law course, I've got 100% in the exam, By the way, uh, John uh, and (laughs) I I did an HR manager course.
1: I didn't. We have a swap.
2: Yeah, I didn't do. I didn't do so well in the HR manager. I'm probably not that touchy feely. Maybe I'm a bit too mathematics. But uh, but I passed it with a reasonable score and uh, some other things. I've even done a marketing course. But anyway, there are the national career service opportunities. Of getting skills out there, sector-based academy program or SWAP that are there. So there's free training for your employees, uh, and you've got some at certain age. Uh, traineeships have come in. Uh, so with the SWAP program, the government funds the tailored support uh, to meet the recruitment needs. Traineeships are there uh, to gain, is it 70 hours of safe, meaningful, and high-quality work experience? Uh, there's a thousand pound incentive for every young person that you take on. You can have up to 10 incentive placements per employer. So there's an element of thinking, uh, do you want to take advantage of that? It runs out on the 31st of July, 2022. So there's an element of these, a lot of these schemes are time limited, but potentially give you capability of taking on extra people and getting qualifications. Also there's the, is it level three qualifications for eligible adults that are being promised under the free qualifications for adults. Go for it. Uh, you know, I've done a number of free, um, I'm going to say open university courses uh, in, in the boredom of the night. Otherwise, it would have been jigsaws or Lego. But now we're out of lockdown. Maybe there aren't so many incentives to do it. But I think there's, if you want to further your own career, go for it. Any of that I've missed, is so a skills boot camp as well. So that's to build a talent of people for new positions and apprenticeships for those 19 and over. I'm trying to think what the incentives were. There are some. Uh, you can train your own employees through the boot camp and the government meets 70% of the cost. Or you can uh, train independently and, and gain people that are experienced elsewhere where it's 100% funded for those people who join it. Phew. Have I said enough? Oh, that was-
1: That was amazing. I've also put a couple (laughs) of things in the chat for those interested or watching. I've put a link to the Kickstart prospectus for those who want to find out more about it. It gives it in great detail about how you can access that scheme. So that's in the chat for everyone to look at. And of course, not to forget the uh, payroll apprenticeship scheme, which Simon highlighted. And um, there is obviously an apprenticeship levy. You can access, uh, I think it's £9,000, the apprenticeship levy to cover 100% of the costs of training uh, through the payroll apprenticeship scheme. So, you know, well worth taking advantage of those schemes if you if you, you, know, let's, let's, if you want to get more skills training for your younger or, or, or new to the payroll industry uh, profession. So um, anything that the rest of the panel would like to add to, to those many schemes, Although Simon gave a very good overview.
0: Karen, I was going to say, yeah, yeah the Payroll Apprenticeship Scheme, if I can, we actually, um, and I'm sure many on this, the webinar will be experiencing this. Getting payroll people who know what they're doing is like pulling teeth at the moment, just like there's other areas of accountancy that are having issues. So we've, we grow our own, as it were. So we launched a payroll academy using the Payroll Apprenticeship Scheme. And when you think about it, in addition to the current government grant, which is going to go now to the end of January, um, you know, that's £3,000. You know, we don't pay the national minimum wage for apprenticeship. We do actually pay more. But that effectively sort of helps you cover the, the costs of there. But our aim is that, you know, you get a course that's really detailed. Uh, with a qualification at the end for these individuals. They're brand new to payroll. So even, you know, if you put through apprenticeships, and obviously if you need resource, that's brilliant. But even if you don't, consider putting people through the apprenticeships and putting them out into the market because there is a shortage of payroll skills out there. Um, You know, as it happens, the apprentices I've taken on this year, we will be keeping for ourselves. But effectively, £9,000 worth of qualification, and as us, because we draw down every penny of our levy uh, as we pay it, you know, is going to cost us £450. I mean, you just can't get a level three qualification for that money. Um, You know, so for me, it's a a no brainer, but also the course, what's included in the standard. And a lot of work was done by professionals to put that standard together. It really is worth considering, you know, even without the £3,000 grant, even in the future, it's still a really good programme to consider. And I'm going from experience. um, So I would definitely recommend that to people.
1: I can certainly add to the fact that uh, as a payroll recruiter, you're absolutely right. There's a real war on talent at the minute, um, and that's a cliche to hear it, but you're absolutely right. It's hard to find uh, payroll talent. So, you know, this is a great way to upskill the existing team or or new people into the team for sure. Uh, I've actually got a a payroll question that's come in going back to the Kickstart scheme. So uh, the question is, if a sole director has only Kickstart employees, do they claim employment allowance? I want to avoid Kickstart refusing to pay ERNIC funding stating that EA should have been claimed. So I'm going to throw this one over to you, Simon.
2: Well, i am got to say your challenge is do you actually have an employer's national insurance liability? Mm -hmm. If you do, then there's potential that you can. But if the government's paying the employer's national insurance liability, why would you think you would get uh, a grant for it? Does that make sense? So I think there's an element of, do you actually have any liability you're paying yourself as a business? If you do, then potentially you could get the EA. If you don't, then it's a little bit like the furlough in the early days. The government will be saying, what do you mean? You want us to pay your national insurance liability and give you the money to cover the national insurance liability we've already paid?
1: Perfect. And I've got another question here I'm going to ask yourself, Lou, if I may. Again, regarding the Kickstart Scheme, does anyone know whether the NIC category is is A for someone under 25 but over 21, or whether they come under H for an apprentice under 25?
3: The Apprenticeship letter a national insurance letter is specifically for employees who have an apprenticeship um, contract and you can't use any other national insurance code it is very whenever you take are taken on as an apprentice that's a contract specifically for you as an apprentice and nobody else can can use that
1: Super. Fantastic. Well, I think it was probably time if everyone's covered to move on to our next subject today, which is health and social care. I'm going to quickly add that we've had a couple of questions in. Um, but I haven't addressed them yet for those waiting for answers because we are going to come to some of those subjects a little bit later on in the webinar. So please don't think I've ignored them. I'm just pausing them until we get to the relevant section of the webinar. But back to health and social care. So the Prime Minister has announced a new health and social care levy of 1.25%. It's going to be a temporary increase in national insurance rates in 2022-23 for one tax year. Uh, but what's this going to mean for payroll and software developers? What does it mean for employers and employees? And how is this going to affect people over retirement age that are still working? I'm going to start with you, Simon, because there's a software development piece in here, I think, as well, in terms of how these changes are going to impact on payroll. So, What does it mean for software developers? What does it mean for employers? And what does it mean for employees? Well,
2: for April 22, there isn't a lot of software change to be made, but for April 23, there is more. Because in April 22, the operation of the health and social care levy is by an increase of 1.25 percentage points on top of the current rates for both employee and employer. So it's more a juggle of uh, national insurance contributions. But in 2023, it's uh, a separate tax, I'll call it a tax tax, not national insurance, not income tax. And so that, we've got to say, we've got to wait for the design. I don't think the design weight is software developers. The design weight is how are HMRC going to do it on their systems. So we're waiting for them to design it for them first, never mind for us, and then we'll see. Because I guess if they came to us and said it was a new levy for next year, could software be readied in time? Well, as long as everything's settled at the budget next week, the answer is yes. But we know that HMRC will not be ready. The other aspect, of course, is the payslip message. So software developers have been put on notice uh, that there may be an element of placing a payslip message. I think the only boundaries I can really talk about at this stage is it's a message between, well, I say, one and fifty-five characters. I don't think it's going to be one character. It's going to be more closer to forty to fifty-five characters long, uh, and can't really say much more. But they're asking for that message to be given. Two employees on their pay slip in 22 23 tax year. Uh, Karen might be able to say a bit there. I don't know. She may say, you No, know, we're. Um, <laughs> Thank you, thoughts? Simon. Say it, Karen. Yes, I do that's have okay. some
0: thoughts. And you know, I have some thoughts, Simon. Um, I think <laughs> okay. really it's just, I mean, for me, I mean, regardless of the politics of all of this and what people think or don't think, the pay slip message. When HMLC announced what that might be, um, the first thing I would be recommending is you do check with your software provider of what they're going to be able to do. And The reason I say that is as a, a bureau with lots of clients, and I know Simon has far more than we do, is that the way it works at the moment is we would have to put that message on every single payroll to hit every single employee's Payslip, that burden would be huge. So I will be looking for the software to automate that so that it does appear on every every single payslip. But the other thing to bear in mind is if you are an employer and for whatever reason you regularly or that's how you update your employees with a payslip message, if your payslip message cannot take that many characters and therefore you can only fit in the HMLC message that they or the government HMLC message that they wish you to do. You may have to suspend your own messaging while that happens. So it's just, you know, you be aware of it now. It is going to come. We don't know what it's going to say, but it is going to come. So start thinking about that now.
1: Perfect. now how's it going to affect the people over retirement age then that are still working, Lou?
3: Obviously, you know, if somebody is um, getting paid, regardless of their age, if they're due to make Payments that those payments will still hit them. There is no exclusions on this at the moment that we've been made aware of with the information we have. And provided if you have a national insurance code that you have to pay national insurance on, that will continue unless there's an update or a change or an amendment.
1: What about future yes. um, changes in Simon? Because I know that from 2023-24, it's going to become a separate levy in its own right. Do we need to tackle that now? Is it worth talking to the audience about how that might impact?
2: Well, it's worth considering what the implications are, and uh, Karen will know, because she sits on some of the same consultation panels I do, that there's probably a list of about 50 questions that have gone through to the various departments. Some of them we'll have answers on, some we're allowed to talk about, and some of them we can't until ministers say we can. But it's an interesting debate. The consequence of some of this is that, um, for example, attachment of earnings orders or earnings arrestments. Are based on earnings after the deduction of tax and national insurance. Uh, that law is completely separate. So that comes under the Her Majesty's Court Service and Tribunal Service, HMCTS. So are they going to change their law or devolve governments? Are they going to change their law? But at the moment, uh, in 22-23, uh, national insurance contribution will come off the attachment, attachable or arrestable earnings. But in 23-24, it's not national insurance. So is the law being changed for health and social care? So will you actually have that taken off regardless and not reduced? And so there's that consideration. I think, going back to the question I guess you posed to Lou, C-rate C pensioners will have a contribution to pay. Um, but the government are being quite clever here in to the extent that they're applying the levy also to Class 1A, Class 1B, uh, some of the nas- uh, self-employed and uh, dividend tax as well. So it's actually been applied to dividends. So those in the IR35 sort of arena that uh, felt that they could have a reduced taxation uh, and avoid uh, some national insurance aspects by the payment of dividends will actually find that the levy is applied to it. So, um Uh, Did that answer your question a bit, or have I gone off on a tangent?
1: Yeah, no, it does. What we've had an influx of questions coming in as well. I think that answers my question, but let me ask a few others. One was in relation to the payslip message, uh, which comes in from Richard, which just says, is the payslip message a legal requirement?
3: It's quite clear that an instruction has to be, a message has to be put on the payslip. They just haven't released the information on what that message will be. But because you've been given that clear direction, that is what they want. OK, perfect.
1: Uh, another question that's come in from Julie. It says, we add the 13.8% ERNI saving from a pension salary sacrifice to the contributions due. Is this going to change to the 15.05% in April or, or will this remain as it is because NI percentage is not really changing, but rather an additional tax is being added to NI?
2: That's a judgment for the employer to make and sometimes you have to be careful considering that you're adding 13.8 percent because the saving may not actually be that so you've got to be careful especially if this is a salary sacrifice type arrangement um, because it uh, can impact other values it depends on the benefit type but in theory if you wanted to make it up to the 15.05 percent you can but you don't have to It's no obligation
0: to. Mm, I was just going to say, Simon, it might be interesting when it becomes the social care levy, though. I think while it's NI, yeah, but I wonder come 2023, will there be an exclusion on that for salary sacrifice? Potentially. I mean, I know it's in one of the questions of those 50 that have gone in. um, But yeah,
2: well. Well, and and exactly. And they've captured it in the opera law, haven't they? Because the uh, class 1A is 15.05%. So don't think that because you're operating some salary sacrifice schemes, you'll be saving more because actually it's captured by opera. Okay.
1: I've got another question to come in, if I may. Uh, this one comes in from Kim. Just to double check, the increase will not affect the twenty-one, twenty-two p P11D PSA Class 1A slash B rates, even though they are being prepared and submitted after April 22.
2: Yeah, it's very confusing, isn't it? Um, No, because they don't relate to that tax year. So they're all done in arrears. And it's a common question uh that we see is saying, well, what's the impact on this year's P11Ds, etc.? Uh, this year's P11Ds, uh, as it were, for twenty-one, twenty-two 22 will be filed, sorry, for twenty-two, twenty-three 23 will be filed in July 23. So the impact is at that point, not before. So, yes, it's something... Technology-wise, we call virtual time. So it's not real time, but virtual time. It's, For example, my, my self-assessment return, I'm not going to do the 31st of January, but it relates to last year. Uh, if you want to know why I'm not going to do it uh, until the 31st of January, it's because I'll owe the government money. I don't want to pay it before then.
1: Great. And last but not least, before we move on to the next section of the webinar, is there, are there any rumblings or rumours to amalgamate tax and any anytime soon?
0: Take a brave government, I think, Nick. Yeah, um, it's been agree. how many times has it been polled, Simon and Lou? So many times. I remember being on a specific yeah. forum, a forum that was originally chaired by David Gork when he was uh, Minister of Tories. You know, it, it's been muted about. I wish they would. I wish they'd just be brave and do it. But uh, there's no rumblings that I'm aware of, Simon.
2: I, I think that's correct. And we're actually, the health and social care levy sort of muddies the waters even more. Plus, there's an element of how would you handle a community of NICAT contributions, transfer of employees, multiple employments between different employers. So at the moment, I think uh, they know what the problem is but they also know what problem it might cause. So, it, yeah, there's always rumours on this. And you think uh, it's uh, – they call it the Office of Tax Simplification. They look at some really complicated stuff.
4: Sorry, I, I think there was a report about five years ago uh, from the OTS on this. And in the introduction, they made the point that if we managed to solve this, they'd move on to world peace because clearly they'd be on a roll.
1: Great one. Well, well that's probably a the good proposal on to...
2: changing the tax year is a significant, one isn't it? So there's that rumbling around. Well,
1: yeah, it, the it is the tax year
2: yeah. might change?
1: Let's <laughs> let's take. i think we have a lot of questions on the next subject. Let's move it over to national minimum wage. I think this is going to be something we're going to get into some nitty gritty with. So please keep your questions coming. I will try and get to all of them as we go through. I'm going to open this up uh, to the floor up here to you, John. If you can give us the latest on the. National minimum and Wage, you can see from the bullet points there, lots to, uh, lots to get through in terms of a conversation piece, but uh, I wonder if you can take the floor.
4: Yeah, I will. What, what I'll start off with is, is consultation, and there has been a response to the consultation on tipping uh, service charges, gratuities, um, really to address the issue uh, of individuals who are working in that sector, uh, having deductions made from their tips, uh, which I've always found a, a, a not very edifying practice in itself. Uh, But what the response to consultation says is is really, firstly, that there can't be any deductions uh, from TIPS uh, unless there's any requirement under tax law to do so. Uh, There'll be a requirement on employers to distribute TIPS uh, in a way which is fair uh, and transparent, Uh, and I can see that that could be done by the trunk master uh, if there's a trunk system uh, in place. And there's an obligation on uh, an employer to respond to questions relating to tipping records. And uh, apparently there's also going to be a statutory code of practice um, on tipping as well, which I'm looking at the three things which I've gone through. And if all of those uh, happened, I'm not sure that there's that much need for uh, a code of practice on it. But clearly, you know, it gives additional rights. Uh, What there is going to be, if there's any dispute about that, uh, it'll give the individuals the right to go to an employment tribunal and make a claim. Um, in respect of any issues, in respect of tipping. Um, So I think it's it's, uh, generally a positive thing. When it will come in um, is anyone's guess. Uh, We know with the previous employment bills, there hasn't been very much from an employment-related perspective, uh, but the intention certainly is is that's going to be brought in at some point. Um, So that's the, uh, the consultation on that. We then turn to biggest risks to NMW. Uh, and I think me and Simon agreed that we would double team this. So uh, I'll kick off. uh, And the first one is relating to uniforms. When you're dealing with uniforms, if you're an employer and you provide a uniform free of charge, uh, then in those circumstances, there really isn't going to be a national minimum wage issue in those circumstances. But when you come to deductions that are made for items or expenses connected with the job, then you run into a national minimum wage issue. And this could cover uniforms, it could cover tools, um, safety equipment, whatever it is. And in those circumstances, uh, those matters would fall to be deductions and therefore potentially take the payments made beneath the national minimum wage. Uh, And this is uh, an area where lots of employers uh, have been called, um, not necessarily through uniform itself, but through imposing a dress code. So for example, saying you have to wear smart black trousers and a white shirt. Now that's something which HMRC uh, deemed to be potentially a uniform, uh, can therefore impact on national minimum wage. And uh, in terms of dealings with that, One of the strange provisions uh, of the way the regulations work is that if someone has to go and buy a pair of black trousers for their work, that there is nothing to prevent them going to the Hugo Boss store uh, and getting a pair of black trousers for £115 and that affecting national minimum wage. So there are ways of dealing with it. Um, You could direct people to a particular store or website um, to purchase the uniform that they need. But it's an area where lots of employers have been caught. And as we said previously on these webinars, you know, most of the breaches of national minimum wage uh, are inadvertent because people either don't know the law or they're not applying it correctly. And there have been some very big employers who have been caught by uniforms uh, and the payments that they've been making falling beneath the national minimum wage.
1: Great. Right. To yourself, Simon.
2: Yeah, another significant area is on there is the apprenticeships. And uh, I think we've got to take some care with the apprenticeships. As Lou mentioned earlier, it involves a training contract. Uh, just because you call someone an apprentice doesn't mean they are one. And also the national minimum wage rates only apply for certain time limits and ages. So uh, the government are running repeated campaigns over these past few months towards apprentices to, uh, in effect, whistleblow on their, uh, employer because, uh, HMRC are finding lots of apprenticeships are actually breaching the application of national minimum wage, whether that's because they're not really apprentices at all or the fact that they've over run the time limits on the reduced rates. So be careful on apprenticeships. Now, there have been a number of questions saying, well, the apprentice has been on furlough for the past six months. So therefore, the apprenticeship can extend for six months, can't it, for the limits that we can use those national minimum wage rates? And the answer there really is the judgment point is when did the apprenticeship start, not what's happened in between. So be very careful. On that uh, approach. Interesting.
1: Challenge- I've had a question in on this, Simon, so I'm just going to tackle it while it's real mm-hmm. time. Um, sure. It says I have an employee who, who has, I have a client who has an employee who has an apprentice who finishes apprentice year on uh, 1st of uh, October 2021. But from November 2020 uh, 20 till now, the apprentice was furloughed. What rate shall I use and can I extend the apprentice wages for another 12 months or should we pay national minimum wage for the employee?
2: Yes, the latter. So, you should okay. pay it according to the age of the individual uh, because the first year has expired uh you, the apprenticeship may be continuing, but I'm afraid the rate doesn't because it's only for the first twelve months
1: great, so it's interjectable so, it relevant on the apprenticeship piece
2: yeah. Well, and it's interesting that the Bayes and HMRC also came out with a statement. I kind of read it to you in relation. It's probably not one of the items on there, but uh, some will know about the savings scheme challenge and deductions in general. So let me just uh, find that statement if I can. It's just that crucial point when you find that you can't. Um, well, I'll just in uh, while Simon
0: looks for it. <laughs> I was just gonna say yes. when it comes to that, just be very careful for those who are listening. Not all payroll systems are capable of recording a start and end date for an apprenticeship. So, yes, you might have yes. changed them to category H um as a true apprentice. And again, particularly if you use yep. a provider. Their systems may not be able to do that. So you as the employer will be responsible for ensuring that either your provider or your payroll uh, department know when that apprenticeship has that one year up. So please, please do check that. Not all can record it just because they can see it's an H. They don't know when that started. That's right. I was
2: going to say this is where the advert comes in. Of course, on the SD work solution, it does.
1: We've had a couple of questions coming as well, but do you want to go? Do you want to read out the bit you've got there, and then we'll jump into some, uh, some, some. Uh, yes, yeah, sure.
2: So, so this is the determination of use and benefit. So the HMRC and Bayes, who govern the law, have come out with a uh, statement. They say the breaches occur if the amount deducted is retained by the employer, such as going into an account owned by the employer. This could either be the main business account or a separate bank account used just for the savings scheme. So are talking about savings scheme. Even if in practice the employer doesn't and never intends to use the bank account, if the employer owns or controls the bank account, it could use the funds if they wish to. This would be seen as being for the employer's use and benefit. So there's an interesting aspect here in any scheme, even on uh, benefit uh, purchase, etc. Or deductions from pay. If it's seen that the account is under the control of the employer, it's for the use of, uh, of the um, benefit of the employer. It's seen to reduce minimum wage. If it's not and it's paid over to a third party, which is independent on or, or a trust on the worker's behalf, then that's okay. So it's just interesting to make sure that control uh, becomes a deciding factor on minimum wage. And uh, the other one that uh, uh, they've spoken significantly of about recently, Nick, is toil or time off in lieu. I don't know if uh, John wants to say something on,
4: on toil, but uh, timing is key. Well, well, well it is. I'm not, and I have to say, we're, we're looking at it in the National Minimum Wage uh, Manual. It doesn't really help, does it, when the starting point of of HMRC is to say time off in lieu is not recognised in national minimum wage legislation um, in terms Mm. of that. And uh, I've seen different views on it. My view um, in respect of of toil is it's not so much a a salaried hours issue, because if you're working salaried hours, then, of course, you've got the opportunity to effectively pay average uh, across the year. Um, so I don't think it's so much an issue in those circumstances. Uh, but if you're looking at, at other forms of national minimum wage, working time, for example, time work, uh, then I think there is a potential issue there. But but my reading of it um, is that provided that the payment is effectively taken into account in the next pay reference period, uh, that is OK. But anything longer than that, then you're going to run straight into a national minimum wage issue. So it's just a question of, of the timing uh, of these things as much as anything else. I've got a
1: couple of questions. This might be well directed back to yourself, uh, John, again, which is, uh, would you suggest then that when we process an apprentice, we ask for a copy of their contract?
4: Well, in terms of that, you, you should have a contract anyway, so I'm not quite sure what what the question
0: is. Are you is. meaning as a bureau, Nick? Is that coming as if you if you have a provider?
1: I'm not too sure. At least who's asked the question, maybe you may be able to clarify in the chat. Just as would you suggest that we process an apprentice be asked for a copy of their contract?
0: If it's as a provider, from my perspective, I would be saying, no, I don't want the contract, but you might have, if we haven't the ability to record the start and end, then you would, I mean, Simon's practice might be different. We would say, no, give us the start and end. Um, Or it might be that it falls upon yourself to say they've started as an apprentice and you would then tell the provider when it's due to end. But I doubt a provider would actually want the physical contract.
3: Or it could just be a wages team is maybe wanting to double check what an HR team provide them. And that might be if it's an in-house operation the payroll team want to have the confirmation that they've checked for themselves what the contract date is of the apprenticeship and that will be another way of why in-house you might want to ask for that information but I go back to what I did when I was an in-house bureau you're relying on HR to provide you to start and end date or at least the start date and the information that you need to process through that payroll
2: Yeah, and it becomes uh difficult doesn't it because we're reliant on the honesty of the person providing the information so there's an element of how deep do we go because there are gdpr issues etc but there is an element if you think in our terms of conditions of service we'd have it that we want um the employer to tell us the truth uh because we really our obligation under services to act under their instruction now is their instruction correct uh, that's a different matter and that's difficult. But we do have um, obligations to do the right thing, especially as uh, Karen will be aware, uh, her practice there will have obligations under AML, et cetera, and and due diligence. So there is an element of thinking, look, when you're doing payroll, your clients can't just anything. Do obligate them to be honest and true.
1: So not, not national minimum wage, but related to the real living wage. Uh, I've got any indication, a question comes from Julie, any indication on what the increase to the real living wage will be?
2: Yes, it will have that uh, known factual knowledge. Uh, is it the second weekend in November? So no, in the answer, the Living Wage Foundation announced it usually on, I think it's the Monday after the first weekend, is it? It's uh, last year it was about the ninth the year before It's about the 6th, so uh, beginning of November you will get an announcement from the Living Wage Foundation.
1: Fabulous. And last question actually relates to our previous topic, but I want to make sure we answer it now before we move too far away from it, which was, will the health and social care levy um, uh, be shown separately on payslips or lumped into national insurance contributions? So if this has been answered already, i joined a little bit late.
2: Yeah, Sure. For for 22-23, it's part of national insurance, but for 23-24, it will be separate.
1: Anything else you want to add for closing statements on national minimum wage or should we jump into the next part of the topic?
3: Can I just um, mention for the national minimum wage that what we have to consider maybe is what we've worked through in the pandemic for the last 18 months and how people have maybe been doing late night emails or early morning calls and the standard maybe 7.6 hours uh, per day of somebody has maybe extended to beyond that I mean ADP had released some research over the last week that employees are reporting that their days are longer and the the national minimum wage checks that HMRC do are not just necessarily reliant on contractual hours it's about the hours actually being worked for the individuals and it's important for businesses and organisations to be sure and to report on the hours actually worked because if if you look some at some of the statistics people are talking about maybe working an extra day a week in free time you know if you're sitting having your breakfast or a coffee in the morning you're flicking through emails you know maybe individuals are asked to go in or to work early and um, not to be paid but just to go in to do a catch-up that all it has to be included for the national minimum wage checks and it's very important that everybody realizes that on social media very often on the Facebook pages um, more and more, I'm reading, I'm not sure that people are aware that just because a contract says it's a 37-hour week, it's what the individual actually works is what is the key to all this as well.
2: That's a brilliant point. Yeah, I, was, I was thinking in the quality papers recently, there was a story in the mirror, wasn't there, about... Uh, that uh, the went a bit viral on the security guard that was told off for not starting work 15 minutes before his start time,
1: start time and yeah.
2: refused to do it. And then there was a debate and expectation. And a lot of people actually came in that they felt it was reasonable to start 15 minutes before. But that breaks mm-hmm. national minimum wage law requirements. If you start 15 minutes before, you're expected to be paid
4: from 15 minutes before. We we see quite a lot of variations on on that theme, Simon, particularly where you've got uh, people working shifts uh, and then at the end of the shift, there's that handover uh, and it's that extra five or or 10 minutes or or people being searched, you know, within the workplace on their way out. You know, all of those things that just extend the working time. Uh, And to be quite frank, a lot of employers don't really register that that's an issue from a national minimum wage perspective.
1: Any um, regulations, John? While I'm here, because I had this a question that I, I saw on a forum uh, this week, that feels relevant um, in relation to reducing lunch hours, for example, thirty-seven and a half hour a week, but I'm only going to make my employees, you know, they will fin- we finish at five or even four forty-five, but they only get fifteen minutes or half an hour for lunch. Are, are these changes allowed? Are they normal? Are you seeing any any um, information regarding well, to that, those kind of situations?
4: Well, it, it, you've got two issues that, that, that are going on. One is the requirement for appropriate breaks um, under working time regulations. Um, uh, and that can be a break, you know, 20 minutes you know, for, for lunch. That would be sufficient. And then you've got other periods of breaks. There's a whole series of break provisions within the working time regulations. So that's one issue. But then you've got a separate issue of, of what is contractual uh, and it, within the terms of the contract. Uh, And if you've got a contract that says that you'll have a half hour lunch break, but someone unilaterally says they're going to reduce that to 15 minutes, that on the face of it is a breach of contract. Uh, uh, Therefore, something that someone can raise a grievance about, potentially claim um, to an employment tribunal if you can't resolve it. Um, But, you know, what's in the contract is in the contract until such time as it's effectively varied.
1: I mean, one thing we do know, in respect of national minimum wages, payroll professionals are certainly doing a lot more hours typically than their contracts usually state. And I think that's pretty much for everybody. But I don't want to open a big can of worms on hours that paywallers work right now. So let's try and move it on to the next topic as I leave you with that. With that microphone drop. Uh, gender pay gap reporting 10% of employees haven't reported within the extended deadline. Has the pay gap increased during the pandemic? Um, love to hear more about this. Let's start off with yourself again, Simon.
2: Okay, great. Um, yes, yeah, so it's interesting that the, uh, 2020 gender pay gap, uh, would have had been required to be reported by the 5th of April, uh, 2021. There's extended six months and that, uh, 10% of employers actually failed to report by that extension date. I think the numbers have dropped, so I think a lot more have come in. In fact, looking at statistics, it's actually higher now than it was some uh, some of the previous years. But the general uh, gender pay gap uh, stays at about 10.4%, which goes back to the 2019-20. There are some industries where things are improving and others that aren't. And you say, is it consistent? Uh, Not really. So you've got some big companies, I'm allowed to mention them. So Jaguar Land Rover has uh, gender pay gap has shrunk by 12.4% which is great whereas for some other companies it's it's interesting i won't name them uh with there's one firm that's jumped by 22.6% in favor of men whereas for another it's gone the other way and you think they're similar industry so what's the challenge but the top 10 companies with the highest pay gap are still seen as uh, the banks, and uh, well, British Airways still appears there, but uh, certainly the top four others are big retail banks. And then it starts to hit into um, uh, some retail and uh, hospitality trade, so interesting times. Um, I think it's an oddity, isn't it? Because during the pandemic, and I, I guess I've got to be careful what I say, but if I talk about family experience, I found that what do you do? Children are excluded from going to school because there's been an outbreak or they've uh, got a COVID. You're not necessarily on sickness anymore because you don't have to isolate, but you've got your children with you. So who's going to look for them? How does that impact family life? And I guess the primary carer, if they're working, is possibly the one that has to step to one side, and I certainly know with my children it's usually the, the higher earner is the one that works and the lower earner doesn't. Does that sway in a strange direction for people? I think society's not there yet, often it does. Uh, have I said too much and gone over a line? I've got to be careful how I go, but I think there are social impacts hit by the
3: pandemic.
1: We jump into what we think the chances or is going to announce, or what we think he's going to announce.
3: But the UK government is facing a national budget deficit with more than 300 million. So clawback is going to be key. And this seems to be an area that wasn't dealt with previous in previous budgets. So the November autumn budget seems to be the optimal time for what change is going to be on the cards next.
1: So how about yourself, Karen? What do you, what are we predicting the, uh, the Chancellor will announce in the uh in, in, you know, in, it's in, so in, difficult
0: in, to call. <laughs> Normally we've got a, a good gut feeling of what may or may not come out, but everything is, whether rightly wrongly, blamed on the pandemic. So we've got to recover these monies. And for some it seems to be the let's let's hit everybody with as much as we can because we've got to pay for the pandemic. Um sure. the the reducing the lifetime allowance <sighs> That could be a possibility. I think it's short-sighted, though, because, you know, we've got automatic enrolment. And OK, that won't affect the higher earners, you know, in this respect. But if they, the rumour is that it will go down to as, you know, as low as 800,000, that's not a lot if you started saving for your pension at 18, 19 and going to go right through. Um, it sounds a lot. I mean, yeah, of course, it'd be a lovely pot. But over a lifetime period with AE rates, bearing in mind a lot of the pots pre-automatic enrolment, it was, you know, the rates were very low for people saving in a pension. Um, so I think there's a danger that. If he does do that, the flat tax rate could announce that, but don't forget that there's no way that could come in overnight. So would they announce that and say for the end of parliament? And then of course they'd have a vote, and whoever then wins the next general election undoes it or doesn't do it. Um so I'm sorry, I'm not really very helpful. I, I am on the fence. I do think there'll be something, but
1: they there, always announce something that gives everyone. No opportunity to prepare for the changes, though. So maybe they will do that because they very rarely give payroll much advance notice of anything, in my experience. Simon, it's what are more your predictions? It's, so uh, it's the pension providers.
0: It's not so much payroll here. It's the pension providers who've got really antiquated systems. You know, well, they're still whether they'll do
2: and pence, aren't they?
0: Yeah, whether yeah. they'll do some relief at source versus net, yeah. possibly as well. But again, that would be pension systems hit. Um, you know, payroll software, I think, will cope once we know the rules, if they change them. But it's the pension software we've got to be worried about.
1: What are the pre-budget speculations or things we're most confident, I guess, that we think he's going to announce? Is there anything we can we can predict confidently? National minimum wage rise.
3: <laughs> <laughs> In relation to the budget, my only thoughts are maybe around there's rumours about the student loan repayment thresholds changing. But that would be um, budget speculation that has been in the media talking about the reduction from twenty seven thousand down to twenty three or twenty thousand uh,
2: uh, fuel duty. I suspect that most will be frozen, so we 'll have to see how it goes. It took three or four years ago. I might have had some idea of what was going on uh, this year. My big fear is that we 'll come on the day twenty seventh of October waiting to put down all the tax rates for next year, although they're frozen until 2026, aren't they? And he'll say, oh, and by the way, I'll announce all these in the spring statement. That would be a disaster, wouldn't it?
1: Let's jump in then to the next slide, there, which is really talking about these new ways of working, uh, travel and office. What are the, some of the key trends that we are seeing? What do employers need to consider? Uh, and flu season slash booster season advice. So um, what are the key trends? John, let's, let's have a look at yourself, if we can, here, because you're going to be seeing this from an employer's perspective, presumably.
4: Well, well I am. And, it, and it's, it's something of a, of a mixed bag. Um, there's an element there of, of given that everything has, has gone on and for an awful lot of people uh, who've been used to working full time in, in the office. then of course, most people have kind of shot out the, the bullet of a gun, you know, some time ago uh, and then have got used to working at home. Uh, and to a certain extent, for a lot of employers, they've recognised that that genie is out out the lamp uh, and you can't put it back in. Um, so there are still quite a lot of them are, are thinking carefully about how to do it. Uh, and there are a number of legal issues which arise from it. Uh, but Cara's right. I mean, it's, there's a split across sector. And the last ONS statistics, if you're working in IT, 81 uh, percent of them were working remotely. If you're working in hospitality, it's... Um, It's a a far smaller number, only 8%. So there's a kind of split depending on what type of industry um, that you're in. And I I think when I speak to to clients, uh, a lot of them are are, are trying to balance, I think, some of the competing elements uh, of advantages and disadvantages uh, of of hybrid working uh, and what the appropriate balance is. Of course, there are a lot of advantages to to hybrid from uh, an employer's perspective. Um, in a sense that perhaps not quite at the moment, but going forward, there's going to be some overhead cost um, that you can save uh, in terms of premises. Um, Certainly, our experience uh, at DWF was that people were more productive working at home um, than they were uh, in the office. And uh, also, as well, in terms of of trying to get people back uh, to a level that they're not particularly comfortable with, creates a a risk of, of losing skills. Because in, in the sense that people have got used to working from home. And if you've got young kids, uh, you can drop them off at school in the morning, you know, pick them up after school, don't have to pay for after school care, and then just spread your working day a, a little bit longer than it was. Uh, and trying to, to go back to something which is really forcing people um, into the office is something that a lot of employers are, are concerned about in terms of the impact that that, that would have on them. You know On the other hand, you know, there are concerns that have got on a number of fronts, uh, one of which is is culture, um, which is important, uh, and the sense of, of having that kind of ethos of, of what a, an organisation is about or what a place is like uh, to work in. And there are concerns that that, that may drop off, uh, and also in terms of the, the sort of the, the retention piece a, a, as well, if people are just working from home you know, to a certain extent, it's not the name above the door that keeps people at a place. It's the interactions they have, the friends that they've made, all those other elements that make work, a, a, you know, at a some level a, for most people you'd hope an enjoyable experience. Uh, and if people are not really going in that much uh, and then they get offered, you know, an extra £1,000, £2,000, you know, three years ago they might have thought, well, I, I won't take that, but maybe I will. So certainly a lot of our class are concerned about that side of, of, of things of as course,
1: well there's also, also there's also a related to forcing people to come back to the office if they've Absolutely. got used to work and leaving for those reasons so it's getting that balance right it,
4: it is it is getting that that balance right and and also there's a there's an element of collaboration and, and certainly um, in, in our field um, a, an element of, of supervision and uh, to a certain extent you know in, in any job when you're, you're all working together you know when people first start I remember when I first started, I used to spend a lot of time pretending to read something, but listening to what more experienced people were saying on the phone uh, and learning on the job in that respect. So there are those type of of challenges as well. Uh, And of course, for a lot of people, uh, there are concerns about mental health as well uh, and how that can be affected by people working uh, on a purely remote basis with a hybrid. It helps, but purely remote. Uh, Then certainly we've got concerns about about that and how we would deal with that as an organisation. Uh, I think as a
3: payroller, I'm concerned that junior members of the team are missing out by working from home because there's not the conversations on the floor where you're asking, you know, fluid questions relating to a client and relating to a payroll. And whilst yes, you can certainly manage from home. It's not the same experience or knowledge building that you can pick up because there's live conversations at the tea break, you know, at lunchtime or around the office, which I think is really important to learn in payroll.
1: I want to thank everyone for all of your engagement today. I've had so many questions coming in. Thank you ever so much to our expert panel. I want to take the opportunity as well to make sure that I invite you all to the next PQT in November 2021. Registrations will be open soon, so please do keep an eye on stworks.co.uk forward slash PQT. Thank you to expert panel. Wish you all a wonderful month. Good luck with all of your payrolls and we'll look forward to bringing you the next PQT really, really soon. Thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA
3: Recruitment.
0: If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels till next time